to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 12, verse 12, as we follow along with today's lesson. On the next day, many people that were come to the feast, that is the feast of the Passover, they were beginning to gather now for the feast of the Passover, coming early, uh, spending the days uh, in purification, going through the rite of purification, so they will be able to enter into the temple and uh, join with the worship uh, in the temple precinct. So uh, many people... Uh, that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, uh, they took the branches of the palm trees and they went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting On a donkey's colt. And these things the disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. So his day of presentation to the nation as their Messiah, according to the prophecy of Zechariah. He was riding on a donkey. The people began to cry a messianic psalm, Psalm 118. Hosanna, Hosanna, the Hebrew, and they were crying it in Hebrew. The translation is save now. And as you read uh, in Psalms, it is translated there, save now, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So this uh, psalm uh, that uh, they were uh, crying out is a prophetic psalm of the Messiah. It begins, the prophetic part begins with, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that God has established for the presentation of the Messiah the promised Messiah to the nation. And then that psalm goes on to talk about the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief stone of the corner. This is the work of the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then it goes on to bind the sacrifice unto the altar. So it is a psalm that is speaking of Jesus being presented to the nation as the Messiah, 
tied together with Zechariah, coming in on a donkey, and tied together, of course, with the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, where Daniel, the angel said to Daniel, from the time that the commandment goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, the prince, will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, or 483 years. And so it is all tied together. The prophecies of the Old Testament on this day, this day of the triumphant entry of Jesus, as the people are waving palm branches and crying out, uh, Blessed Hosanna, or save now, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Uh, you remember that the Pharisees said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples, this is blasphemy. And Jesus said, I tell you that if they at this moment would hold their peace, the very stones would cry out. Luke tells us how that Jesus, looking over the city, wept. And he said, if you'd only known the things that belong to thy peace at least in this thy day, but they are hid from your eyes. And he spoke then of the desolation that was going to come. So this is John's account of the triumphant entry. It is an abbreviated account in comparison to the other Gospels. But John had, of course, in hand the other Gospels, and so he knew that it was covered sufficiently there, so did not see the need, I'm sure, to... Uh, cover it as thoroughly as the others had. But John does give us this little insight. They didn't realize what they were doing when they were doing it. It was just sort of a spontaneous thing. Uh, in verse 16, these things the disciples did not understand at the first. But later on, when Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, they remembered then these scriptures. He's coming on a donkey. And Psalm 118, oh, they remembered then the scriptures. Uh, the things that were written are the very things that we did. The people, therefore, that were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead, they were bearing record. They were going out around and saying, you know, we were there. We saw him come out of the uh, grave and all, and uh, they, were, they were witnessing of what they saw Jesus do. And for this cause, the people also that met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle, and the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Do you perceive how we prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. Here is a, a movement now towards Jesus by the people. Uh, but the builders, the religious leaders, are conspiring to set him at naught. And they will soon have him hanging on the cross. But God will raise him from the dead. And the stone which was set of naught by the builders will become the chief or the head cornerstone, the rock upon which the church will be built. Now, there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. 
And the same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee. And they desired him, saying, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. There are Greeks here. They want to see you. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. From the beginning, Jesus talked about this hour. The beginning of his ministry when in Cana of Galilee, there in the second chapter of John, the first recorded miracle of Jesus, the turning the water into wine, when Mary came to Jesus informing him that they had run out of wine, the gentle suggestion that maybe he should do something about it. He said, what is that to me? My hour is not yet come. The hour of his being presented to the nation as their Messiah, the hour of his being glorified by the crucifixion and the resurrection. In chapter 7, when they wanted to arrest Jesus, they could not lay their hands on him because his hour had not yet come. In chapter 8, as he was teaching in the treasury, portion of the temple, again, no one could take him because his hour had not yet come. But now Jesus knows that the hour has come, that the Son of Man should be glorified, glorified through his crucifixion and resurrection. And verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So he gives to them a classic kind of an illustration. Here's a little grain of wheat. Set it on the shelf. It'll just abide there alone. The potential is there of bearing much fruit. But it has to die in order to multiply. And so Jesus is referring to himself that through his death there will be much fruit, the multiplication, the wheat abides alone unless it dies. And if it dies, then it brings forth much fruit. And he that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. When Peter first acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus then said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. So Jesus is saying very similar things here. He who loves his life, he who lives for this life, you're going to lose it. But if you 
will live your life for Jesus Christ, you'll discover what really living is. If any man will serve me, Jesus said, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man will serve me, him will my father honor. So beautiful words of Jesus, of encouragement to those who will be giving their life for him. Those who love not their own life, uh, but were willing to give their lives for him. And Jesus said, my father will honor them. Special place of honor for those who have given their lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus said, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus was reluctant to go to the cross. In Hebrews, we are told, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He went only in obedience to the will of the Father. When in the garden, as he was in agony, in prayer, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was praying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. It was total submission to the will of the Father. And Jesus is now troubled because the shadow of the cross is now falling across the path that he will be walking in just a couple of days. And he's troubled, he's concerned about this. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. There are many things that cross our paths, that cause our souls to be troubled. There are things that happen to us or to those we love that we do not understand. And as we try to reconcile these things with the love of God and believing that God is love, we find great difficulty. Because at the present moment, as I look at this situation, I cannot see the purpose that God is working out. And I'm troubled. I wonder if God loves me, then why am I suffering like this? Why have these things happened? Why am I being afflicted if God loves me? And I cannot see the purposes of God and my soul is troubled. What should one do when their soul is troubled? Do exactly what Jesus did. He prayed about it. He said, Father, save me from this hour. But he did more than just pray. He then began to reason. 
but for this cause came I unto this hour. This is the purpose. God is working an eternal purpose through my suffering. It's for this cause I came into the world. I am here to do the will of the Father, to drink the cup. And so he began to see the situation from the eternal perspective. And when our soul is troubled over our immediate problem, it is so good if we can put the problem in the light of eternity. And if we can see it from the eternal perspective, then as Paul the Apostle, we can say, we know that the present suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. And this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working an exceeding eternal weight of glory. God is working out eternal purposes and his eternal plan, though it may mean temporary suffering or pain or hardship, difficulty. But I see it in light of the eternal. And then there was finally that submission as Jesus said, Father, glorify thy name. The submission. Save me from this hour, from the prayer, save me from this hour to the submission. Lord, glorify thy name. You receive glory, Father. Though it may bring pain or suffering to me, glorify thy name. That's the submission to the will of God. And I think that this is so important that we come to the place where we submit the issues to the Lord. Lord, you work. Glorify your name. And then I have peace. Lord, whatever you want, I'm yours. And, and if this suffering is Serving an eternal purpose? Fine, Lord, I'll accept it. If this trial is going to bring out eternal benefits, then fine, Lord. Paul the Apostle, in writing the second letter to the Corinthians, said, May the God of all comfort comfort you with the comfort wherewith we were comforted when we were going through affliction. And then he went on to say, if I'm afflicted, it's for your benefit that as I experience God's comfort in my affliction, so I'm able then to comfort you. It's very difficult for us to truly comfort or sympathize with someone unless we have gone through that experience ourselves. You don't really understand the pain and the hurt, unless you've been there. And when you have been there and have experienced that blessed work of the Holy Spirit in comforting your heart, strengthening you to go through, then you can comfort someone else because you've been through it. 
I know that whenever I read of someone being killed in a plane crash, I understand what the family is going through because of losing my dad and brother in a plane crash. And I know the emptiness that they feel. I know the ache that is in their throat. I know the taste of those bitter tears. And thus, I'm able to comfort people in the time of the loss of loved ones, having lost loved ones. So the commitment to the will of God. And Jesus committed himself, Father, glorify thy name. It was at this point that the Father responded. Then there came a voice from heaven and it said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. God's response to that total commitment to his will. The people that were standing by and heard the voice of God said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. But Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sakes. And now is the judgment of this world. And now is the prince of this world to be cast out. The time of the judgment of this world, the judgment of of God for man's sin. The time has come for that. Jesus is going to take upon himself the sin of the world. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way, but God laid on him the iniquities of us all. He is going to bear our sin and is going to die for our sin, going to suffer for our sin, is going to experience that being forsaken of God for our sin. He's going to go to the cross, bearing our sin, taking the judgment of God against sin for us. Now is the judgment of this world. God is going to judge the sin of the world as it is laid on Jesus, and he bears that judgment for us. And the prince of this world, that is Satan, is going to be cast out. His power over mankind will be broken so that I now do not have to live after the bondage and corruption of my flesh I can now live after the Spirit. Jesus spoiled the principalities and powers of darkness through his cross, his triumphing over them through the cross. So Jesus announces the judgment of this world, the sin is going to come, and the prince of this world, his powers against you as a child of God are going to be eliminated. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now, this he said, signifying what death he should die. 
Being lifted up is a reference to being lifted up on the cross. I, if I be lifted up, and, and he's talking about how he's going to be lifted up from the earth on the cross, will draw all men unto me. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. Now, there are some who <laughs> take that lifted up as sort of exalting Jesus. If we exalt Jesus, if we're, you know, talking about him and, and, and lifting him up in our conversations, exalting him, that that is what will draw men to him. Perhaps so, but that's not what Jesus is meaning here. Uh, there is that chorus, let's lift him higher, let's lift him higher, that all the world may see. Uh, ooh, I cringe when they sing that. Uh, because he's signifying he's going to be lifted up on a cross. And uh, it's as though we're going to join in and lift him higher. Uh, but in reality, uh, he's, he's just talking about how it is God's love was manifested in the death of Jesus Christ. It's the love of God that draws us, that attracts us. And it is in the cross that that love was manifested. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has manifested his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's where the love of God was manifested in the death of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The manifestation of God's love is there at the cross where God gave his son to take your sins and to die in your place. And that is the attractive power of the gospel, the love of God for us, willing to sacrifice or give his own son in order to save us from our sins. The people answered him. You see, he's talking now of his death. He said, the grain of wheat, unless it falls in the ground and dies and so forth, and, and uh, I'm going to be lifted up. And they understood he's talking about a cross. So they said, we have heard out of the law that the Messiah abides forever. How come you're saying that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So the confusion that they have because of the scriptures of the Old Testament that tell of the reign of the Messiah, how that of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. The eternal kingdom in, in Psalm uh, 72, um, verse 17, his name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him and all nations shall call him blessed. And, and so the scriptures that speak of the eternal kingdom, the reign of the Messiah, uh, how is it that you say he is going to be put to death? Who is this Messiah, the son of man? Then Jesus said unto them, 
Yet a little while is the light with you. I'm going to be here for just a little while longer. So walk while you have the light, lest the darkness come upon you, for he that walketh in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. And these things spake Jesus and departed and hid himself from them. So he really didn't answer fully their question, who is this son of man who you're talking about that's going to be put to death? There were many passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that spoke of him being despised and rejected by men, Uh, his being put to death, uh, that the Messiah would suffer. Uh, And thus, uh, they were confused. The confusion came because he came first to suffer and die for our sins, but he is coming again to establish the kingdom of God, and then he will reign and rule forever and ever. So uh, the, the conflict of, of thoughts and ideas of the Messiah are resolved in the two comings of the Messiah. So I'm here. While I'm here, I'm the light. Walk in the light. If you walk in darkness, uh, you'll stumble. Believe in the light. You might be the children of the light. And then John tells us, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Uh, That is the religious leaders. They have rejected him. They are conspiring to put him to death. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now this is the beginning of Isaiah 53 in which Isaiah speaks of the suffering of the Messiah and of the death. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep gone astray, turned every one of us to our own ways. God laid on him the iniquities of us all. So that chapter begins with, who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who believes it? Therefore, he said, they could not believe. This morning we dealt with this issue of a person coming to a place where they have said no to the gospel of God's grace so many times. They've hardened their hearts so many times that God finally just confirms that as with the Pharaoh, he hardened his heart against the Lord. He hardened his heart against the Lord. And finally, God hardened the heart of the Pharaoh, or as I pointed out in the Hebrew, God made stiff the heart of the Pharaoh. He just sort of confirmed it. He said it. Uh, after the Pharaoh had hardened his heart so many times, God then just sealed it, the hardened heart. And, And there are people that are that way, where they have refused the gospel so many times, the invitation 
to the gospel is no longer given. They could not believe. Paul tells us in Romans 1, the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth of God in unrighteousness. How do they do that? Well, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and professing themselves to be wise, they actually became fools as they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forevermore. And because they didn't want to retain God in their mind, God gave them over to reprobate minds. God gave them up to their own vile affections. God just turned them over to that. And, and Paul goes on to describe our society today as the result of God just turning them over to their vile lust and the things that they wanted to do, having rejected and not wanting God, then given over to all of these things. Therefore, they could not. It wasn't they would not believe any longer. They could not believe. Because Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. They've gone too far. The religious leaders of Israel have taken the nation too far down. They cannot believe. And thus God has confirmed it. He's hardened their hearts. He's blinded their eyes. And um, there is no healing. There is no uh, remedy. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. However, John does tell us, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Uh, John, I think, is being very generous with these people. Uh, there is, of course, we know Nicodemus, who came to Jesus. There was uh, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who were a part of this council, who believed in Jesus. Of course, they had the courage when he was crucified to step forward and to uh, take his body and bury it. All of the disciples had forsaken and fled. But these two men stepped forward in the death to take the body for a decent burial. And so uh, many of them, he tells us, believed among the chief rulers, uh, but because of the Pharisees, they uh, were silent about it because, and this is a sad, sad thing, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. That, that's a tragic verse. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, and now he's going to talk again about this interrelationship between he and the Father. He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I have come to represent God to you. 
If you believe on me, then you believe in God, the one who sent me. If you have seen me, you have seen God. He said that uh, to Philip in the 14th chapter. Have I been so long a time with you, yet haven't you seen me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? And so he said, I have come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. When Jesus called Paul to go to the Gentiles, he said, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. He that believeth on me should not abide in darkness. John later writes that if we say that we are in the light and yet we're walking in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. But if we will walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from all of our sin. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. Now this he said to Nicodemus back in the beginning. I didn't come into the world to condemn the world but the world through me might be saved. This was illustrated when the woman was brought, taken in the act of adultery. And they said, our law says stoner. What do you say? What did he say? He said to the woman, after they had all left, where are your accusers? She said, well, I guess I have none. Neither do I condemn thee. Go thy way and sin no more. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. So many times we picture Jesus as judging us. And, and we're almost fearful because we think of him in terms of judgment. No, he's there to save. He said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. I've come to be a light. Whosoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If you hear my words and believe not, I don't judge you. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. But he that rejects me and doesn't receive my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in that last day. So uh, Jesus said, what is going to judge you is the word. And in that last day, that is the basis of the judgment, the words that he has said. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. I haven't come bringing you my words. I've come to bring you the words of the Father. He's the one who has told me what I'm to say and what I'm to speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. And whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. I'm here as God's representative. I'm here to teach you the truth about God. I'm here to show you God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. I'm here to show you God's forgiveness. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to save you. I'm saying the things that the Father gave me to say. I'm not speaking of my own self. These are God's words to you. 
and they are life everlasting. So the words of Jesus at this time of crisis. We now move into the night in which he is betrayed into the final scenes before the cross as John gives us more insight into this night than any of the other Gospels, uh, we will be much enlightened as we move into chapters 13 through 17 as John gives us a very thorough, keen, vivid picture of this final night of Jesus with his disciples before his crucifixion. Shall we turn in our Bibles to the Gospel according to John, chapter 13? Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end, or as in the Revised Standard, he loved them unto the uttermost. Now, it's interesting that John doesn't give us any of the details of the feast of the Passover with his disciples. He just tells us that the feast had come and Jesus knew that his hour had come. According to God's determined counsel and purposes, Jesus was to be crucified on Passover and thus fulfill the shadow that was cast into the Old Testament that brought about the holiday of Passover. Going clear back to Egypt, when Moses had been directed by God to demand the release of the children of Israel from the bondage in Egypt and the subsequent plagues that the Lord brought upon the Egyptians, that final plague in which God was to take the firstborn of every household in a judgment against the Egyptians. He commanded the children of Israel that they take a lamb out of their flock the first year. And they were to slay the lamb and put the blood in a basin and sprinkle it upon the lintels and the doorposts of their house. And the Lord declared when he went through the land that night, when he saw the blood upon the lintels and doorposts of the house, he would pass over that house. Hence the term Passover, and hence the feast. The sacrificial lamb, by it dying, it saved the firstborn in the house from death. It was a beautiful foreshadowing of Jesus, the Lamb of God, dying for us that we could escape death. That is, that spiritual death. 
And so Paul tells us that the Old Testament holidays, new moons and Sabbath days, were all a shadow of things to come. The substance is Jesus. And so it was foreshadowing Jesus, the Lamb of God, who delivered us from death. And thus, Jesus celebrated with his disciples this Jewish feast of Passover. But when he celebrated with his disciples, he brought to them the full meaning. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. This bread is my body that is broken for you. Substance is Jesus. So knowing now that he is going to give himself on Passover to fulfill that type and shadow from the Old Testament, he loved his own unto the uttermost. He loved them. He was close to them. Now, as I said, John doesn't give us any details of the Passover supper. That, that is given to us by the other Gospels. And in the other Gospels, we have quite a few details, even of the preparation, how Jesus sent the disciples into the city. There would be a man carrying a jug of water, follow him into the house, and uh, there prepared the upper room and all that we might have the Passover supper. And it tells us the the interchange between Jesus and the disciples, John leaves all of that out, and probably because it was covered in the other Gospels. And John wrote his Gospel probably 40 years after the other Gospels were written, so he was familiar uh, with the other Gospels and felt that that had been covered and was not necessary for him to cover it in his Gospel. So we go from before the feast of the Passover to after supper. Between verses 1 and 2, we, we jump a, a, you know, a few days probably, a couple of days uh, jumped here. Uh, and after the supper, uh, the supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and was going to God, he rose from the supper and laid aside his garments and he took a towel and girded himself. Jesus had said to his disciples, recorded in uh, Matthew's gospel, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, what does he do? Here is the power of the universe vested in him. What does he do with that power? He goes over and he takes a towel and girds himself. Now, the scripture commands us to gird up our loins. Uh, what does that mean? And, and we read so often that they girded themselves. 
Well, in those days, uh, people wore long robes, clothing. And it was for warmth, but it could be cumbersome if you tried to run or to work with a long robe down to your ankles. And so when they were going to work or when they were going to battle, they would gird themselves. That is, they would pull up the robe and they would tie a sash so that then they would have a short type of a tunic, plenty of freedom of movement. And so when a slave would go to work, they would always take and pull their robe up, gird themselves uh, so that they would have the freedom of movement. And you'd always see a slave with girded robe. So Jesus went over, took a towel, and girded himself with the towel. And then he came back after he had poured the water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had used to gird himself. And then when he came to Simon Peter, Peter said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do, you do not know now, but you will know. (laughs) So Peter objected, and rightfully so, I think. (laughs) I can't imagine the Lord washing my feet, and yet that's just the kind of Lord I serve. It's sort of when he came to John the Baptist to be baptized. John said, Lord, you ought to be baptizing me. And and I'm sure Peter felt, Lord, I should be washing your feet. And so Jesus just said, Peter, you don't understand now. You will understand. And Peter said unto him, you will never wash my feet. I mean, I won't allow that. And Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you really have no part with me. And Simon Peter saith their name, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's, you know, all gung-ho all the way. Uh, You know, if it means being a part of you, Lord, I want... I want it all. And I love Peter for this. I mean, yes, he's impetuous, but you got to love him. And so Jesus said unto him, He that is washed needs not save to wash but his feet. He is clean every whit, and now you are clean, but not all. Now, uh, in the Roman baths, which uh, they had Roman baths in Israel at the time, up in the area of um, the Yardinet, uh, not the Yardinet, uh, the uh, area of Galilee. It's the southern part of the Sea of Galilee and uh, over on the Golan side. They, they have a, a Roman bath that is still being used to the present day. And... Uh, when they would come from the baths, they would be there, they would have bathed, but when they came from the baths, 
Uh, as they would come into the house, of course, they had picked up dust on the way, uh, and thus they would wash just their feet, but they were completely clean, and all they needed was their feet to be washed. And so Jesus is making a uh, aversion to this. Uh, all you need is your feet. We'll return with more of our in-depth study, the Gospel of John, in our next broadcast, as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 12-13 through 13 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we give thanks to you for your love for us that was manifested through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can walk in the light even as you are in the light and enjoy this fellowship and this life everlasting. Lord, we pray that you will help us when faced with difficult situations that trouble our souls, may we bring all of our cares and cast our cares upon you and commit to you, Lord, the keeping of ourselves, fully persuaded that what we commit you are able, Lord, to keep. And so now, Lord, we put our trust in you. We commit our ways unto you. Guide us in your paths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Lord, I believe in you. I'll always believe in you. It is by faith that you've been walking into one level of spiritual maturity to another. Faith is the key to a successful Christian life. That is why the Word of God tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It was faith that led Abraham into the land of promise. It was faith that led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. It was faith that enabled Peter to step out of the boat and to walk on water. The question is, what might faith do in you? To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, Faith, or to preview a chapter for free online, visit thewordfortoday.org 
or call 800-272-9673.